Well, evening, everybody. It's so good to be here with you all this December evening. I want to invite you to turn in the middle of your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. It's a huge book. We're going to be looking at another glimpse of God through the eyes of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah, who lived a long, long time ago in a world in many ways quite different from our own. But he saw through all the darkness, through all the ages and stages of history, and saw a glimpse of another world that was possible. And that is a glimpse that we are endeavoring to see tonight. So if you're with me in Isaiah, let's look at our second glimpse of God in the Book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Isaiah says, A shoot or a sprout will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Pause there because I don't know that I'm going to get to this later if I don't say something now. In the Old Testament, when we read about the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about be afraid, be very afraid. Instead, we're talking about a reverent awareness That God is God and we are to live accordingly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the author of Proverbs writes. To understand that God is God and to live in accordance to that reality is what it means to say, I see you, I recognize you as God, and so I, in following your way, understand that out of a reverent awareness. You with me on that? Isaiah continues, this branch will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, right? He's not making snap judgments or hearsay gossip, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. That sounds weird. We'll talk about it. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. We'll pause there and notice those are words and breath, not militaries and swords. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Then in verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest But they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
So in that day, that root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. I want to take a step away from Isaiah's wonderful glimpse of God. This image of a branch that is bringing the world into a new order, a new possibility of peace. Because that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. But for this moment, I want you to imagine a beauty pageant. Many of you may not be aware of this. I was made aware of this because Amy and I were at a restaurant last night and saw this on the television, but tomorrow is the Miss Universe pageant. So y'all have seen the beauty pageants, right? They're a little cringy. I understand this in 2019. But I have a good bet that you guys will be willing to answer this question. You guys have enough awareness to answer this question about my beauty pageants. Now, they're all lined up. And imagine they're asked this question. What's the most important thing our society needs? What's the standard beauty pageant answer? You don't even got to raise your hand. Now, you don't have to imagine it. Show of hands, how many of you recognize what movie this is? Okay, that's another hand raise, bro. (laughs) That was pretty confident right there. I'm glad he's here because that's two for two weeks I've picked on him. What movie is this from? Miss Congeniality. I was preparing for this message and I played this YouTube clip and across the house, Amy goes, you watching Miss Congeniality? (laughs) I said, no, I'm watching a 30 second clip about world peace. Man, they line them up. Will Shatner asks him this question and it's world peace, world peace, world peace, world peace, because it's just this known thing in our society. This is part of it. Does anybody remember what she says? Okay, if you're not familiar with the movie, Sandra Bullock's character is a detective that goes undercover to infiltrate, I don't know what. She's in a beauty pageant and it's funny. So she's an undercover detective. So when she's asked this question, she answers, well, I think stricter sentences for repeat offenders in the parole system or something like this, right? And then it's just crickets. And it's 30 seconds of everybody saying, um what? And she's smiling and smiling. And finally, she breaks the tension with and world peace. And the crowd goes wild. There is something about beauty pageants and this answer that has almost become a non-answer. Do you know what I mean? World peace, world peace. It's like if you ever grew up in church and somebody um, asked you a question in Sunday school, and what's the pat answer there in a Christian church? Jesus. It's true and it's beautiful and it's maybe right, but it's almost a non-answer. And I've been thinking about why is that such a cliche? And I think it's because of this. It's impossibility. Okay? Miss Universe, Lord willing, is going to be crowned this time tomorrow. And I'm not certain she could move the needle in any direction toward world peace with her crown and everything. I'm sure she's a lovely person. But I think we laugh at these kinds of answers because we're like, there is too much power in the world and too many people that have it that are not interested in giving it up. 
There's too many resources in the world being hoarded by too many greedy people that are not interested in giving it up. There are too many countries ruled over by too many people that are not interested in seeing enemies as brothers. We laugh at this kind of answer. We laugh at peace because not only does it seem impractical, I think it's impossible. If we asked Isaiah, what's the most important thing our society needs? I think he would say world peace with a straight face. And I think that if we read what we read as an answer that Isaiah would give from Isaiah chapters 10 and 11, he would paint a world that looks very similar to ours with too many people in power not ready to give it up. Too many people with all the stuff not ready to give it up. Too many countries that see them as enemy instead of brother not willing to make peace. And that's what Isaiah chapter 10 looks like. But then we get to Isaiah chapter 11, and I think he's rattling off what I just read to you, lovely people, and he's saying it with a straight face. And he talks about this impossible image of a stump, okay? How many of you have had a stump in your yard, right? Now, has that stump of a tree just become a mighty oak again in most people's life? John, I know the answer to one of your stumps, but that's another story for another time. You don't expect stumps to reclaim much of their former glory. Now, there's another image of impossibility, and that is of this reality of the existence of poor and the needy and all of this brokenness. Then we see this impossibility of the created order. How many of you think that the wolf really would love to take a nap with a lamb. They would probably love that because they're right there to eat the lamb. How many lambs want to go and take a nap with a wolf? Not a one of them. How many bears and lions are going vegan? Sorry, Taylor. <laughs> Is this a roast of the neighborhood church tonight that I'm doing? Y'all, Bill and, Ka- Bill and Sherry already preached, and it's like... I'm just up here to fill time until we sing again? I don't know. That was beautiful. So, I've got the microphone, so I'll keep going for another few minutes. We see the impossibility of a world that has an awareness of the true and living God like the waters cover the sea. But here's the thing. Isaiah answers this question with a straight face because he sees the impossibility of a stump of a dead monarchy, dead people in power. Jesse was the father of King David. This thing is done. It's a stump. And then he sees the possibility of a branch. He sees the impossibility of the poor that go without, the needy that never get justice. And he sees the possibility of balance and a righteous judge. He sees the impossibility of vegan bears and children that can hold up vipers like you'd send your toddler walking through the street of Garland Road. He sees in the impossibility of the ignorance of the whole world of the true and living God, a world in which the knowledge and knowing and awareness of God floods the whole earth as far as the eye can see. 
And then we respond to Isaiah at the beauty pageant by saying, that's too good to be true. And he says, I know if it's left to our own capacity. Hidden at the beginning of Isaiah's answer in chapter 11 is the infusion and the covering and the empowering and the possibility that makes all of this impossibility aware and alive of a new world that's possible. And it's the spirit of God. Did you catch that? What in the world can breathe possibility into impossibility, renovation into devastation, and peace into chaos? On our own, we have human history showing us we are terrible at this. It is an impossibility. But for the Spirit of God, breathing possibility into impossibility, renovation into devastation, and peace into chaos. I want to spend the next few moments circling back to those four images, and I will give you four ground-level statements. I want to give you four images, those glimpses, that are for out there, for when this king, this branch, comes, empowered and filled with the Spirit of God, to finish the work that he started out there, And I want to give you four statements with those images for the present tense. You with me? All right. Let's start with this first image of the branch. This is fascinating because if you were to look back at Isaiah chapter 10, you would see that he's watched HGTV. Did y'all know that HGTV existed in the ancient Near East in Israel? It did. They picked it up on some kind of spaceship satellite. I saw that on the History Channel, Ancient Aliens. And Isaiah must have seen Fixer Upper. Because he knew that before there was any renovation, there comes the most fun part. Right, Jason and Becky? There's no fun parts right now in your remodel. (laughs) They've watched HGTV also. Before the renovation comes... Demo day, right? We've seen Fixer Upper and Chip Gaines lives for demo day. I've seen him put on his Baylor Bear shoulder pads and run into walls before any renovation is demo day. Chapter 10 is demo day. Isaiah says, you've turned your back on God. You've turned your back on the poor. Read the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 10 and you see why they got into this mess. On our own, on our own human capacity, the world will keep spinning and the powerful will keep hoarding their power and resources and the poor will keep dying in desperation. And when you turn your back on God and you turn your back on the people that God cares about, you're going to find yourself going against the grain of God's way and God's love and God told these people, In Deuteronomy chapter 30, I am setting before you life and death. Did you know that the human experience is a matter of life and death? But did you also know that the human experience isn't all about you? 
So God gathers these people. He calls them Israel. And he says, let's get into a marriage-type relationship. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, they've gotten the Ten Commandments. They've gotten all the other laws. Moses is about to die. They're about to go into their promised land home. And he says, let me just boil it down for you. I set before you life, and I set before you death. If you choose me in my way, if you go with the grain of me and my kingdom, listen, we're going to push back all the darkness and destruction and distortion that is going on in the world around us. You and me, we got this. Little you, Israel, you choose life, we are going to push back the darkness of this world. And I'm going to be your God. I'm never going to stop loving you. When you blow it, I'm right here. And when you blow it again, I'm right here. But there is going to come a point where if you choose death and you blow it for centuries and king after king after king after king after king after king after king king keeps blowing it, listen, I will give you what you want. And you can go against the grain of me and my love and the wages of this sin is death. And the wages of making hell for everyone else on this earth is for you to experience that kind of hell right back on you. And the death and the destruction. And we have all the prophets, Isaiah included, reminding them of their wedding vows when he set before them life and death. And when Isaiah comes around and they're asked, What does the world need? And he says, world peace. They're looking around saying, that's impossible. He says, I know. Because I look at our kings, I look at all of us, and I see generations of choosing death. And God is about to give us what we want. And we need to understand when we read the prophets, when God speaks of lighting the forest on fire in Isaiah chapter 10 and Demo Day, And he speaks about Assyria being allowed in the gate. They've been knocking. God's going to open the door because this is what they want. And God's judgment is going to look like a heavy-hearted, allowing enemy nations to come and demolish them. But Isaiah, in every one of these rhythms, reminds them that there's still a choice for life. So after every demo day, there's still the hope of renovation. So we look at the stump of every king that has turned their back on every poor and needy person. But from the stump, there emerges a shoot from Jesse's line. From great King David's line comes a greater king. The stump has failed, but there's a branch, and the branch is a person. This is the first image. In every country, Israel included in that day, it was the king's responsibility to make sure that the uncared for were cared for. The reason it was a stump I've said many times already is that they turned their back on God. But this branch is different. Why is this branch different? Why is he not going to rule in his own capacity? There's that X factor that runs through every image And it's right there at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11. What's different? What's upon and enabling and enlivening this branch? 
the Spirit of God. Because I just saw your blank faces and I haven't been doing a great job, let me draw the fire that represents the Spirit of God. This is a sense in which every king had the opportunity to choose life and to be anointed by God's Spirit. Isn't it interesting how when Jesus was baptized, right at the beginning of his, maybe we can say, kingly ministry, he comes up out of the water. The Father says, this is my beloved Son whom I love with you and well pleased. And then what else happened? What? The Spirit of God as a what? A dove. Maybe to show people this might just be God's king alighted with the very Spirit of God like all those other kings that we had heard about. But maybe we've never seen anything like him. Isn't it interesting that he's the one that's always being filled and empowered and sent to all these people, this branch? Now, Here's the first ground level reminder of God's peace and possibility within your impossibility. I want you to know this. Israel blew it and they blew it big and they were left with a stump. But even in spite of all that devastation and all that demolition, I want you to understand that if you look close enough, there is always a sprout of new life to be found. This won't be the last time that Israel blows it. Jesus, as God's true king, has a lot of kings that need to come and go before him. But you need to understand that in God's economy, there is always more life when you think you've debited all of it and you're in the negative. There's always more life to be given. I talked with a gentleman this week that was encouraged because while all the... Signs look bleak. I promise you're still going to have a job. And then two weeks later, he gets a phone call. And he was let go. Where's the sprout? We know so many people within this church that have had diagnoses, they've, that have looked like stumps. Where's the sprout? We've had situations and relationships that looked a lot like a stump. Where's the sprout? I believe that we can still reckon with the stump of devastation and darkness. To be a Christian is not just to turn on Christian radio songs and smile and pretend like nothing bad ever happens. The trick is to look at the stump and say, that's not the last word. The work of kingdom people is to look through the cracks and crevices of the brokenness and see where God is still active and bending things toward his will. We have an entire chapter in Romans chapter 8 speaking of the Spirit's work with a groaning, stump-filled world that speaks to the fact that life is always the final word. It's never death. And if you look close enough, in that stump, right now, in your week, I promise if you sit with God long enough, crying and cussing and shouting out to him, if you look close enough, once you get it all out, perhaps you might see sprouts of life and restoration. That maybe they haven't fully germinated, but they're there. This is the Advent call. To look through the darkness into the glimpse of God. 
Isaiah had a glimpse of God's true king, and this true king is finally going to do what a true king ought to do. So that second image, in a word, is balance. The reason I use that word balance is because we read, he will judge the poor. And in our Western society, we hear judge, and we think of Judge Judy yelling at us in the middle of the day, time TV, when we're home from work. And we think that God can't be as sassy as as Judge Judy. We think of our high school friends, when we weren't in the popular crowd, judging us. We think of embarrassments of justice in our court system. We see the Department of Justice in our country sitting idly by while we put immigrant children in cages, in detention centers, and separate them from their families. We look at the departments that are supposed to be for equal housing, and we see gentrified neighborhoods where we can move in the rich and move out the poor, and where we can barely find affordable wages in living, and we say, where's justice? We see people that murder and maim and torture and kill And we see their sentences be commuted. We see no restoration. We see no repentance. And we sit there and we say, where is justice? And however bad we think it is, and however political you think I just got, you need to understand this, that for the world of the Bible, everything is political. Because if politics means the relationship with humans... It means that God is invested in it because he loves humans and humans are made in God's image. And the degree to which that we try to restore balance and justice where there is imbalance and injustice is the degree to which we're acting like a Christian nation. The degree to which we're turning our backs on the people that Jesus was turning toward is the degree to which we're going against the grain of a Christian nation. And again, if you think I'm being too political, understand that for Jesus to say that he is Lord was also to say that Caesar and all these other pretend kings are not. It is very political. So go vote, go do you, go do whatever you need to do out there, provided you are going with the grain of God's heart and God's way. Go do that. But do not think that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party has the corner of the market on justice. God's king and God's kingdom is our first and greatest allegiance. And the degree to which either of those are with him and in that flow, and as clear as you can with your conscience for either side, go do you. But recognize ultimately We represent a king in his kingdom, firstly. And so, when Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos talk politics, they say, we are here because these kings have failed. We need a true king. A true king that doesn't turn their back on the poor and the needy. Because... For every country in that ancient time, the king was the equalizer and the intervener. If you made its way up to the ranks, you'd stand before the king. The lowest of the low, desperate widow 
could plead their case to the king and the wise and good and godly king would restore balance if there was any imbalance and she was cheated. The problem is that this rarely happened. So when he says judging the poor, he means balancing this imbalance and bringing justice where there was injustice. If you don't believe me, in Isaiah chapter 10, the thing that starts this whole demolition is that they were signing into law things that oppressed and marginalized the oppressed and marginalized even more. It's politics when it comes to people because God cares about people. So isn't it interesting how the gospel writers always speak of Jesus giving and intervening on behalf of the least, the left out, and the lonely. When Isaiah speaks of the rod of his mouth, striking down the wicked, slaying the wicked, he's enacting laws that actually affect change and balance. Can Republicans do this? Yes. Can Democrats do this? Yes. Can they do it like Jesus when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven in fullness? No, not without the Spirit's work and a true king. They are shadows and we celebrate them when they work, but we always look ahead to the greater time. And the reason why we understand it's not fully there is because the city in which this king presides over in Isaiah's glimpse looks like a place that's safe, that's just, where the poor have what they need and the needy are supplied for. And I haven't seen a nation sustain that yet in the way that Jesus might be able to. And it's interesting because he has this spirit speaking God's will and his will is being enacted. The balance is being restored. And it's interesting that it says he will not judge merely by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear. He ain't just going with the flow of culture, okay? Hear me. If you think I'm talking too much over to the left or too much to the right, I'm trying to go right down the middle and say, Jesus, number one. Politics, number two. On both sides of the aisle, we need to understand that I'm not advocating we just go with the flow of culture. I'm saying that Jesus in his way is always against the grain of culture. And he's not swayed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's not going to be listening to anyone but the Spirit of God. And in John's gospel, Jesus is walking around saying, I say what I hear from the Father. I do what I hear from the Father. Now, here is our second statement from our second image. In this city in which balance is brought. Let's follow our king's lead by doing at least this. Don't judge, discern. Don't assume, ask. Here's what I mean. Jesus is not so easily swayed, nor should we be. How many conflicts in your relationship could have been avoided if you asked the person how they felt instead of assumed what they thought? Don't assume that they won't or that they don't understand or that my spouse doesn't know what I need. They don't care about me. They're upset or they did this on purpose. Don't spend your mental energy by what your eyes see and your ears seem to perceive. Ask the person. 
Don't judge this person based on appearance or the gossip or the hearsay. Discern in your heart with the Spirit of God the way forward and with this person. Would you resolve in your marriages never to assume but to ask? Would you resolve in your relationships in our community never to judge but to discern what the next right step is in loving and coming alongside this person? I think we'll begin to look a little bit like that city. And I think when we get that right, we see the third image of Isaiah's glimpse of God, that under this spirit-led government, all hostility is overcome in a way that overflows to the entire created order. Can you imagine a world that's not just world peace in politics and government and human relationships, but a world in which wolves and lambs are taking a power nap together and not fearing each other? Can you imagine a world in which your kid can go run and play in the viper's nest? Your kid might want to, but you don't want them to. But he should fear not because this world has been set right. Stay with me real quick. I don't know this is to be totally true, but I wonder, could our failure at the beginning of Genesis, our failure to bless and till and keep the earth the way God told us to, to walk with him and choose life and to surrender to him? Could our failure in Genesis 3 actually be the root of all the distortion of the world around us? Could the stump of this earth and how we've not really taken the best care of it be of our own design? But is there a sprout of new life in which God is actually going to make all those things new? I love this idea that because when the true king comes and comes and reigns in fullness, it won't just affect human relationships, but the entire cosmos will be affected and renewed. Every square inch of God's shalom, his holistic peace and well-being will extend. And I love this imagery of children leading them and walking in safety. This week I've been gripped again by a story I shared with you a long time ago, but I think some of you may not have heard it. It's hard to look at this glimpse where children can live and laugh and be unconcerned with the cares and difficulties of this world, especially when we see so much violence and difficulty and fear that they face in their day-to-day life. The story I've shared before I want to share with you is of a pastor, theologian, author I really deeply respect. His name is Greg Boyd. And he was praying to the Lord in a really desperate space. Because that week, a little girl in her town, in their town, had been found dead, kidnapped and murdered. And it deeply affected him. And he was sitting in this space of prayer, trying to make sense of it and trying to get this pain and this darkness out. Trying to see a glimpse of new life in that darkness. And he said, I had this vision almost, this image in my heart of hearts, where I saw a playground And it was filled with children. And they were running and jumping and laughing. 
And children who were sick were running and running and running. Children who had suffered lack of limbs and difficulties, were constrained to wheelchairs, were freely moving and enjoying themselves. And in the center of this playground vision, Greg Boyd said he saw a figure that he knew that he knew that he knew was Jesus. And then Jesus locks eyes with him. And with this sense of weariness that speaks to the struggle of the way things are, there was enough of a knowing between the two that he heard the voice of Jesus say, I will make it up to them. And it's the sense that he couldn't find exactly and explicitly, except in glimpses like Isaiah chapter 11 in the scriptures. But it seemed to him and it seems to me something that sounds a lot like what Jesus would be about. That all the brokenness and sadness and darkness and all the hell on earth that they experience for our failure to live as God's kingdom citizens empowered by his spirit that we've inflicted upon these least, Jesus will make it up to them. Jesus will move us and act us. To say that before shalom extends to every square inch, would he call us to do our part in the present tense? So the third reminder of God's peace in this glimpse is to bring God's future peace into our present. God will renew all things and he will make all things new then. But could we do what we can with our little corner of the globe today to bring balance and peace and justice and love and grace and mercy even now in the present tense? Finally, the fourth image is this knowing, this awareness that when every square inch is covered by God's peace infused by God's spirit, we see this peace radiating out and we see as the waters cover the sea, this awareness, this knowing, this sense of there really is a God who is making all things new. To live like that is our job. To know that God is who he says he is, that he's working all things together for his good, and to be about that not just then, but today. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? So it's not just this outward movement of the Spirit of God, but the whole world is streaming in to see this banner. In verse 10, the branch and banner of Jesse will stand in the midst of it as if to signal to the world it's safe now to come home. The final image is one of the king standing in the center of a renewed world, signaling to the poor, the oppressed, the child, the widow, the orphan, and even you and me. It's safe now to come home. So the fourth and final reminder of God's peace is to stay awake to the miracle of this moment while still trying to look through the darkness to see the banner beckoning you to that city. But in this moment, we can be aware and awake to that reality.
this week as I close. I had this moment in this sense. In the midst of all of our coming and going, I had Emma with me in the car. We were headed to the rock. Nora was running errands with Amy. And I just got super sappy dad on her. Because you can do that when they're buckled into a car seat. And I said, Emma, you are a miracle. And she was like, uh, what? And I was like, do you know what a miracle is? She's like, those magic tricks? I said, sure, okay. Jesus magic tricks, but sure. I said, a miracle is something that God can do that is so amazing, you just got to sit there and say, whoa. I said, Emma, you are a miracle because all the variables it takes to get you properly formed into you, to be healthy, to be sitting here with me in this time, with all these cars driving around, with all these people running around, with all these sicknesses and illnesses and struggles and forces at work against all of this. It is a miracle that you're in my back seat right now. Because Nora wasn't with me, I went home and I grabbed her and I snatched her up and I said, Nora, you are a miracle. And she says, can you put me down? Because sometimes you can only say those magical things when you're squeezing them tight. And I went through the whole thing with her. And I think the job of Advent in the midst of your coming and going is to be sat down or held tight and be reminded that it is a miracle that you can live and breathe and see another world that's possible and to work with God to make more of those miracles a reality today. Father, would you help us and fit us for the coming King and the kingdom in which we now live and move and have our being? May we be so gripped by its vision that we hold that in our hearts and in our hands to be transformed by it in the inside so that we would work for it on the outside. Lord, I recognize that we talked a lot about politics and these things and this things. I pray that what wouldn't get lost in my failure or success in trying to communicate this glimpse is the glimpse itself of the one who is empowered and emboldened by the Spirit of God and sent by you, our loving Father. That you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ever in relationship, ever in motion, ever moving in dynamic and life-giving ways, inviting us to go with you and with the grain of love and forgiveness and sacrifice and peace and justice and righteousness, would you continue to move in us and move us out to form us for mission, to be fitted for the kingdom that is and is yet to come. Through the name of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen.